If you were with us last week, you may remember that we began what is uh, looking at what is known as the greatest story ever told. It is, we saw Jesus Christ, who has offered himself to be the sacrifice on our behalf. When we left off, we left Jesus with Joseph of Arimathea and with Nicodemus, and they had placed him in a tomb. This morning we come and we see the completion of the greatest story, or at least the introduction of it, because we consider not just the death, but now the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you'll open your Bibles with me to John chapter 20, we consider the Word of God this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus, on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The word of our God. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy God, we do come to you this morning, praying that you would speak to us. Bless us with the word in accordance with your promise. Open not only our eyes, but our hearts, that we would not simply see, but believe. Kindle our minds, that that might be fuel for the heart. Enable us, as we gather, to love you, Lord, all the more, as we see what you have done through what you have recorded for us. Lord, we do pray that you would bless us this day. We pray in Christ, our Redeemer and our King. Amen. Something rather amazing took place this morning at 6.53 a.m. It's probably not going to be in the news, but that doesn't mitigate about how sensational it was. 6.53 a.m. this morning was the time that our sun rose again today. Again, hardly newsworthy. It happens every day. And so it would really be newsworthy if you were to get up one day and look at your news feed or turn on the weather channel and have them tell you the sun's not coming up today. That That would be a story. Because the sun has a long track record of faithfulness to its duty ever since the Lord created Uh, this world and then declared let there be light the sun was there and every morning the sun rises in the east and we are able to see it and able to see by it 
Now, the sunrise in many cultures and through many generations has long been uh, known as uh, not only a daily reality, but as a metaphor for hope. It is a metaphor for a new dawn, a new day, which is reason for hope. As the new day comes, as the sun rises, yesterday is past, whatever the challenges were, they are behind us. With the new dawn is opportunity, whatever it is that is still before us. And so this has been a, a constant, and we see it reflected even in some of the songs that we have that celebrate in our culture. You think about our own national anthem, Oh Say Can You See, by the dawn's early light. The whole idea is to think about what people are fearing, and yet as the new dawn comes, we are able to see that the foundations of the nation continue to stand, and that should be a reason for hope for the future. Or for those of you that are into the theater, you may think of Annie, who sings the sun will come out tomorrow, bet your bottom dollar on the sun. And, you know, if you think about it, she's really not betting on the sun rising so much if you think about the whole song, because, again, that's not newsworthy. But it's the symbolism that you see permeating that, that it is the hope of tomorrow. And tomorrow is marked by the rising of the sun. And the reason that is hope is because the past is now the past, and the future is unknown, filled with promise. The same is true of the resurrection, which John introduces to us in our passage this morning. The resurrection is a historic reality that rather than every day happened one time in history. And yet, even with its historicity, it is a metaphor for hope. It is the promise that is fulfilled. It is the signaling of a new day for those who trust in Jesus, who was the one who was dead and who now is alive. Now, John gives us an interesting detail that none of the other gospel writers give us in their accounts of the resurrection. And we see it in verse 1, which says this, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. John's the only one that tells us that it was still dark. And the reason that's significant is not only is it a historical detail that we now know Mary came before the sun rose, we know that she came before the twilight, which is the 25 minutes before the sun's official rising, it was still dark, no twilight. We hadn't seen that crack of dawn, even the whole idea of crack of dawn, that dawn doesn't make any noise, it's, it comes, that comes from the whole idea of if you have light kind of comes in through the cracks in your door, um, and so you can kind of see that, it doesn't light the room, but you can see light by it. But that was all before that. Mary had come to the tomb before any of that was taking place. And so John's making clear that it is still dark. But I think John is also indicating something for us because we see the theme of darkness and light permeating everything that he writes throughout this entire gospel. And so John's not only giving us a historical fact about the time of day that Mary went, but he is giving to us a metaphor of the condition of the heart of all the followers of Jesus. I mean, their hearts were dark at this point. Their hopes had been put in Jesus. They had been following him. They would put everything. They bet, like Annie told them to do, uh, put, put their bet, on, bet their bottom dollar on him. And now he had died, and with him, their hopes had also gone into the tomb. They'd gone into the grave. They were buried. And yet there was a tremendous affection, and it was still seemed surreal. They were bruised, they were hurting, they were hopeless because one, not only who was their hope, but one that they loved was now gone. So this pall of darkness 
certainly covered their attitude, their emotions during those quiet days. But more than just a metaphor for the attitudes of those who were the followers of Jesus, I think John is using the word dark and using that historical moment as a metaphor for the condition of the world prior to the resurrection. John had earlier, quoting from the Old Testament, declared a people were walking in darkness, had seen a great light. They didn't like the light, they preferred the darkness. And, and here, John is saying, before the whole idea of the resurrection really sinks in to those who would be followers of Jesus, the world was in darkness. The hope that many had had died, and so without his hope, there is no hope, and so people were wandering in, in darkness and, and in their, their hopelessness. And John, I think, uses this word for us because he is reminding us that not only is that the condition of the world, but of the nature of the relationship that we who live in this world have with darkness. See, the metaphor of darkness tells us things about ourselves that it's good for us to know and would be good for us to admit. And the reality is that our relationship status with the darkness is complex or as some social media would say, it's complicated. I mean, think about the different ways in which we use darkness to indicate uh, 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 the way that we relate to it. We use the phrase somewhat benignly, but he or she is in the dark. We use that to reference somebody who is lacking knowledge or lacking wisdom, whether they are by nature just always in the dark or whether they're in the dark about a particular issue, we use that phrase to say somebody just, they don't know. They have, they have no knowledge. They, they're, they're lacking something, and so therefore they are in the dark and they're in need of being enlightened. We also think about the darkness and recognize that many people, in one sense almost universal at some point in, in life, often attributed uh, at childhood but sometimes into adulthood, are afraid in the dark or afraid of the dark itself. I mean, think about the number of children as they become aware of the possibilities of this world, and then in the darkness, they don't know what is and is not there surrounding them. And so therefore, anything that their mind can conjure up is a possibility in the darkness because they cannot see. And even into adulthood, when we rationalize and realize that the dark itself is just the absence of the light that we normally have during the daytime, we still get very uncomfortable, even fearful, if we are in an unfamiliar place and it is dark, it is nighttime, because we recognize that we can't see and we can't assess whatever threats and dangers may be there. And so it gives us this creepy feeling. There's a reason that almost every horror movie is set at darkness, and all of the stories and all the monsters come out at dark because it plays on the fears that are essentially universal because of the unknown, what we cannot see, and we realize we are not in control, particularly when we are in the darkness. And so therefore, we are afraid of the dark, and we are longing for light. We need the light. But then there's another way in which we need to acknowledge that we relate to the darkness and it's not the same as the first two where we're lacking or we are afraid, where we know that we 
or that we long for the light. But we also love the darkness. Jesus himself said that you know, humanity, people, love the darkness because our, our deeds are, are evil. And there are times when we don't fear so much being victims in the darkness, but we actually prefer the darkness. Times when we await the cover of darkness to do the things that we want to do, but that we don't want other people to know that we are doing. Fear of scandal, shame, maybe even just the fear of being corrected. We know that the things are wrong, but whether it's a literal darkness of night or the cloak of darkness by isolating ourselves so that other people are in the dark about what it is we are doing, we prefer, we look for, we, we love that darkness because it's in the darkness where we engage in some of our baser sin. And in that, depending on where you are, you may be experiencing that and feel enslaved to that right now and you are in one sense longing for the light but feel addicted to the darkness. Or you may still be clinging to that love of the darkness and haven't come to the point now where you want to be delivered from that. And so it's a complicated relationship. But whether you're longing for the light or are waiting for the darkness again, here's the reality is even with this relationship that we have with the darkness, we need the light. I think John has given us this description, this word to help us to understand the world into which Jesus had come, the world which had crucified Jesus, and now the world into which Jesus steps again because he is showing us that the light of the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection is when the light of the world stepped out of the darkness of death and of decay and of deceit and even of doubt into the world. And because he himself is the light, he enlightens, he illumines, and he demonstrates what is good, what is real, what is true. And every promise of God now radiates from him as he walked out of that tomb. And there are implications that we have of the resurrection. We'll look next week more at the way that the people change, but there are some fundamental implications that we need to understand that John reveals in this text this morning. And first and foremost is that we need to understand this. John doesn't go into great detail, but the whole of the New Testament teaches this reality, really the whole of the scripture, is that the empty grave is an indication that the sacrifice was accepted. Now, some may wonder, what do you mean by that? Well, Jesus Christ was the one who came, not only God in the flesh, but he is the only one in history, with the exception of Melchizedek in the Old Testament, who was simultaneously a prophet, a priest, and a king. In fact, one of the prophecies of the Messiah who was to come is that he would be a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which means he would not only be a priest, but he would be a prophet and a king. And God is very serious about that because nobody else other than the Messiah is to have all three of those offices at the same time. And God's so serious about it, we see it illustrated in the relationship with the first king that he raised up for Israel with was Saul. Now, if you're familiar with that story, Saul, who was the king and for a while had a pretty good run of things, was getting ready to go into battle. 
He didn't want to go into battle without the sacrifice being offered because a sacrifice was necessary in order to secure, to know that they had God's blessing, that they were right with God before they entered into battle. And yet the priest hadn't shown up. And as the battle was getting closer and they realized we couldn't hold off much longer and the priest still hadn't shown up, Saul being the king, therefore being the leader, feeling the responsibility for his army and for the kingdom of God, he thought, well, I guess I just need to do this. And so he offers the sacrifice. As soon as he offers the sacrifice, the, the priest shows up. And in a point of judgment that has really perplexes me in a sense, I mean, by nature it perplexes me, he, God brought judgment on him and said, now you've forfeited your kingdom. Now, whenever I read that, my natural inclination is saying, that seems a little harsh. I mean, his intention was good. He didn't want to go without God's blessing. And who else should have offered that sacrifice? There was nobody there that was qualified, so he being the king took the responsibility on himself. But God's judgment is not because of the, the nature. It's because by being the king who's now becoming the priest, he is blurring the reality of the coming Messiah. It could be possible for people to say, well, he's a king and he's a priest, and you know, he quotes some scripture here and there. He's a prophet, priest, and king, and believing that Saul was. And God protecting the prophecy of the coming Messiah brings judgment and takes the kingdom away from Saul, gives it to David because it was always going to be through great David's greater son that the kingdom would be inaugurated in the first place in the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus comes as, as the king who is the prophet who is also the priest. And so the role of the priest is to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people. The priest would, in the Old Testament, take the sacrifices, offer them, because the scripture said, without the sacrifice, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so year after year, the priest would prepare themselves, they would go, and they would offer the sacrifice, and if the sacrifice was accepted, the people knew that their sins had been forgiven. And in particularly, one time each year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holy Chambers, where he would offer that. And he needed to ritually and rigorously prepare himself to go into that chamber because an unclean priest was unable to offer a sacrifice that would be acceptable to God. And even a clean priest would have to offer a perfect sacrifice or an, a, a, a spotless sacrifice to God. And so the problem the priest had is that he was like us. He was human. Therefore, he was born in sin. And his life, his attitude, his mindset, he expressed he had the same temptations as we did. Therefore, by nature, he was impure, had to go through a process to become pure. But who knew if it was good enough? So the Jewish tradition would attach to that priest who was assigned to go in a rope to his ankle and a bell. So that as he would enter into the Holy of Holy Chambers each year to offer that sacrifice, if the people started thinking this seems to be taking a whole lot longer than I thought it should, they could shake the rope and bell, and if they didn't get a tug back, they realized the sacrifice hasn't been accepted, that the priest was either unclean or the sacrifice unacceptable, and therefore God had brought judgment and the priest had died, daring to approach God. Which is a reminder to us, because we, we approach God so nonchalantly. God demands holiness and perfection. And not only can the priest on his own, but neither can we accomplish that. But if there was no tug back on the priest, then the people would stand out and they would just kind of, the guys would all get together and they would haul the guy out. Um, they'd bury him and know that they were still under the burden and the guilt and the penalty of their sin until the sacrifice could be offered again the next year. The people would celebrate was 
when the priest would reemerge from the temple, from the holy chamber. So if the priest had gone in and he had been purified and the sacrifice was accepted, he would go through his ritual duties, offer that sacrifice, and then once he was done with that, then he would walk out. And once he walked out of the Holy of Holies and into the courts where the people were, they would begin to celebrate because they knew that the sacrifice had been accepted just by the virtue of the fact that the priest had walked out. Now, the empty tomb, Jesus, who is the priest, is offering the sacrifice, which is the spotless lamb, which is he offered himself. In those days in between, who knew whether the sacrifice was sufficient? How do you know whether he died because he was a sinner? He just covered it up better than the rest of us. Or it wasn't the sacrifice that was sufficient to begin with, in which case we don't know where we go. But in those days of darkness, people had reason to fear until they come to the empty tomb. And while they're yet to fully understand the fact that the tomb is empty is because Jesus has walked out. And he was able to walk out because the sacrifice that he offered as the priest himself as the sacrifice was acceptable. It was acceptable because he was the one that was prophesied from all along. John the Baptist said so even when Jesus shows up on the scenes in the beginning. Behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. He is the perfect spotless Lamb and his walking out of the tomb secures every promise that God has made and everything that the cross has secured. The empty tomb is the testimony that the sacrifice for our sin has been accepted. And this is a sacrifice that is offered once for all so there's no need to repeat it. We see something else here that's important for us to understand. It's an implication of this introduction that John is giving us to the resurrection. And I think in addition to understanding that the empty grave tells us the sacrifice was accepted, we see in this passage that grace is given to the needy. We see that in the person of Mary Magdalene. It's significant that she's the first one to see the empty tomb, although at this point she's not clear what that means. And she's the first one to see the risen Christ, at which point she is enlightened. But Mary Magdalene being first, we see reaffirm a pattern that is in the scripture that overrides our inclinations, our own ideas. See, we, we tend to think that God prefers good people. I know our doctrine says otherwise, but we act what we really believe. And for most of us, we, we tend to think that God appreciates the same kinds of people that the world admires because we are drawn to those who are successful and powerful and, and beautiful and, and, and respectable. And, and so we think that it's the respectable people that, that God loves and they're respectable because God has given grace. And it's not that that's totally untrue, but it distorts the reality of our condition and it distorts the reality of God's love when there is very little difference between our understanding of who God grants grace to and those who don't even know God thinking that God has granted favor 
Over and over again in the scriptures, the idea that God favors the good is overturned, and we see it very vividly here in the fact that Mary is the first one to see. One thing is true is what little we know about Mary, we do know that when Jesus, Mary Magdalene, we know that when Jesus first encountered her, that she was a woman who was possessed by multiple demons whose life was a total disaster. And yet Jesus engaged her. And Jesus freed her. And Jesus healed her. And consequently, having experienced the love of God in the person of Jesus, she loved in response. We don't know whether this Mary is the same Mary who crashed a dinner party at the home of, of Simon the, the Pharisee. Many scholars believe that it is. If you know the Bible stories, you may remember this situation is that Jesus had been invited to the home of Simon, one of the religious leaders, and there were other people around the table, likely to be other religious leaders, the respectable kinds of people. And Jesus was there ostensibly as the guest of honor, and while dinner was taking place, you have a, a woman named Mary, whether it's this Mary or another Mary, had, had just crashed in, and then immediately as she finds Jesus, she falls to her knees and then bows down at his feet, and she begins to anoint his feet with expensive perfume and with her own tears. And then scandalously then lets her hair down, because in that culture it was not appropriate for a woman to let her hair down outside of her husband and maybe her immediate family. It just wasn't done. So she lets her hair down, which is scandal enough, and then she begins to wipe the dirt from his feet with her own hair, her tears, and the oils, wiping that away. The room was relatively silent, other than some mumbling and grumbling of the religious leaders who were talking amongst themselves. What they were saying to one another was this, is if this guy was really a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this is, and he wouldn't have anything to do with her. This is, this is just this is outrageous. And Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, he stood up and he turns to his host, and he asks them a question in the form of a story. And he tells a story of two men, both of whom owe tremendous debts. One is an incalculable debt, another one is just a significant debt. And says, and their master forgave both of their debt. So Simon, tell me, which of them loves the master more? And Simon says, one who was forgiven more, I suppose. To which Jesus says, you answered wisely. And turning back, looking at the woman, he says, this woman has not stopped worshiping me since she arrived. You invited me to your home, but you've done nothing. You've given me nothing for my feet. You've not treated me as the guest of honor, which you said that I was. You've not even treated me hospitably for the culture that we are in. Nice of you to invite me, but, you know, she has offered herself and worship. And what he is indicating to us is the difference in natures of people. It's not that God likes bad people better than he likes good people. It is an illustration of the reality is only those who know their own desperation are open to receiving grace. The rest of us look at grace as if it's an AFLAC policy. Good to have, but I'm already covered. But you never know if I'm covered enough, so I'll take this out. Because what we're really relying on is our goodness. Of course God loves me. What's the not love? That's rhetorical for those of you who know me because you could give me a whole list, so. And 
And the problem that we have when we instinctively assume that God favors the good is that we mistake our own brokenness and our own sin and assume that we are not as needy as those whose brokennesses are more obvious or who live in such a way that is not respectable in our culture. It's just illustrating the reality of those who are needy are the ones who seek and long for grace. Therefore, they're the ones who receive it. And it speaks to every one of us. It's a beautiful reminder to us. That we need the light. That we are in need of grace. No matter how much you are respected and affirmed in this life. And so we see the reality of the resurrection an indication that the sacrifice that we need has been accepted. We see that the recipients and the beneficiaries of that sacrifice are not the good, which would be most of us here, but the broken and the needy, which is all of us here, whether we know it or not. And we also see one other thing that, I, that, that caught my attention here, and it's that the, it, it really is it, through the whole passage, but jumps out at the end of this passage in John's own testimony of the faith that he has because of the resurrection, which we see in verses 8 and 9. If you look at this in verses 8 and 9, it says this, Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first, John yet again, talking about himself without talking about himself, he also went in and he saw and he believed. And that belief jumps out at me. And so what do you mean he believed? Because the clear implication is he now believed. Now, as we go through the entire story, we, we see what's happening here. Mary had gone to the tomb, recognized the tomb was open. She didn't have any clue, but she just goes straight to uh, Peter and, and to John. And she tells them the, the stone has been, has been rolled away. There, there's something that's not right here. And they dash. And so you get an idea. We know Peter... Uh, would not have gotten a track scholarship, John might have. Uh, because they're both running, and Peter gets there long before, or at least significantly before, and he goes and he just stops outside, and he stoops down, and he kind of peeks in. And it says here in, in verse 5, and stooping to look, he saw the linen cloth lying there, uh, but he did not go in. And, and the word there for see, for the, in terms of the, that he saw, in the Greek is, is blepo, which means see. In other words, he can take it. It's what we see with our eyes. He can describe it, got all the details, and, 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 but he was able to see and he was taking it in. Then we see something that is not as evident in, in, the, uh, in the English as it is in the Greek. In the very next verse, when Peter arrives and just bursts right by John, kind of shoves him out of the way and jumps right in, we see this in verse 6. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself, that itself. So there were some things that just weren't right. And the saw that he had in the Greek is not the same word blepo, but theorao, from which we get the word theory. And so even as they saw, one comes in and can describe everything that's going on. The other one now comes in, and he's looking around, and you know, he's beginning to process this. He's developing a theory as to what's going on. But when we get to verse 8, and we see 
John, he goes in and he saw. There's a third Greek word that is used there. It is neither blepo nor theorao, but it's iden, from which you might think idea, which is not the actual translation, but it sounds easier to remember. But it indicates understanding. He saw, he took in, he understood. And there's a progression here that we see in these two guys. One can see and can describe, then one sees and he's developing a theory, but John now understands. And we're told, because he saw, he believed. But it makes me wonder, then what was it that he believed before he saw? I mean, Peter's the one who made the confession, and yet all the other disciples were sitting there, uh-huh, yeah, let's, you know, he stole our answer. Peter's the one who said, you are the son of the God, you are the promised Messiah. But it's not like the other disciples, obviously Judas had a different take on it, or at least a different understanding about the Messiah. John would have agreed, and, and it was that understanding, that love that he had that enabled him, of all the disciples, to remain faithful. He's the only one that didn't run away. He was always there, even the one that was entrusted with caring for Jesus' mother. I mean, why would he do all that? Why would he risk everything at that point if he didn't believe what Jesus was teaching and what Jesus had said about himself, including the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, the promised Messiah? He already believed, and his life was indicating it. And now he comes here at the tomb that is empty, and he's saying, aha, now I believe. And he goes on and elaborates because up to that point, up until he saw the empty tomb, he didn't understand the scripture. None of them understood the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. And here's why that's significant. Because it speaks to a trend in our culture and in our generation. It's not the first time in history. Jesus doesn't come back. I doubt it'll be the last time in history. But we are putting the priority on many churches, including biblical Bible-believing churches, putting the priority on the teachings of Jesus and following the example of Jesus as if Jesus had come to be our example. And I would say that prior to this, John understood the importance of that. But now with the resurrection, he recognizes, oh, see the most important thing, the foundational thing from which everything else has to flow is that Jesus had to die and he had to rise again from the dead in order to fulfill every promise. And it begs of us to recognize that the foundation of our faith is believing in Jesus is who he is and what he has done for us. And with that, we get the power for Jesus to be at work in us and through us, enabling us to believe and to honor him rather than confusing ourselves thinking that our good deeds merit us anything. So we need to understand that the resurrection is where faith and hope merge. So the faith is in the historical reality of Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection in addition to everything that he taught. Hope is something that is yet to come. We tend to treat hope prior to the resurrection the same as we treat hope on everything. Something we want, I hope so. It's kind of like that feeling of you know, it'd be nice, but there's, nothing, there's no reason to believe. But the Bible continually teaches hope is the same as faith, except faith is anchored in what has passed, but hope is the same intensity, the same kind of faith that is believing forward. And it is the reality of the resurrection in which faith and hope now merge where we can believe in that which has not yet come because everything that has been promised 
has been fulfilled and demonstrating even power over sin, life, and death. That comes in the resurrection. And therefore, the resurrection is the hope that every promise that we long for in the scriptures is real. The faith in the resurrection that has the power to turn your darkness into light.